Welcome to the Royalist Rising podcast. A royalist is a supporter of the king. Jesus is king, and we dare to believe that he created us with purpose to live out the kingdom in our unique realms of influence. May you be inspired to believe that God really does use ordinary people who are broke, busted, and sometimes disgusted to bring him glory. Hi, friend. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Royalist Rising podcast. My name is Sarah, and this is a special one that is near and dear to my heart that I have been putting off for a while because it's a requested episode. Um, If you follow me over on Instagram, then you know that I share a lot of my IBD journey with Crohn's disease, which is a chronic autoimmune disease. Currently, there is no cure for it. And a lot of you were asking me to share my full Crohn's story, which is something that is tough to do because it's hard to share such a big part of your life in such a small amount of time. It almost belittles the pain and it almost um, takes away from how hard the struggle was. But it's okay if you don't understand everything I went through. You're not supposed to. It's my journey. And I'm so thankful that I've learned to walk through it with God because he's the only one who sees every moment and every tear and can relate with everything that I'm feeling. Not even my husband can fully understand everything that I walked through. And I think sometimes that's our struggle when we walk through pain or traumatic experiences is that we want to keep telling the story over and over and over, hoping that somebody will understand because we need that pain to have purpose. And we need that pain to get out of us and be able to connect with somebody else on a a level about what we went through. And So my hope in this isn't that you will understand everything I went through because you're not going to, but if maybe one thing that I went through speaks to you and encourages you that there's hope on the other side of your pain, then it's worth it to me. So this is a very um, vulnerable place for me to share. It's me exposing all of the things that pretty much make me who I am today and um A lot of them were very hard and not everyone knows everything that I went through. But I do know that when I was going through some of these hard times, I wished that there was somebody who would be brave enough to talk about some of the things I was dealing with. Somebody that I could have connected with that knew to some extent the struggles that I I was facing. So that's my hope is that in sharing, I will give somebody else hope. If you're not struggling with an autoimmune disease or a chronic disease, um, then still listen to this podcast because at the very end, I really think that it's going to be able to speak to everybody, no matter where you are at in life. So my journey begins when I was about 12 or 13 in middle school. I started to have these horrible, horrible stomach pains and My stomach started getting bloated all the time. It looked like I was pregnant. I would be sitting in class and my stomach would make the loudest noises that people would actually turn to me and ask me if I was okay. Like, are you hungry? Do you need a snack? And they were not hunger pains. They were just things moving in there and things were off. 
And we started going to my primary care physician and he started running all these tests and couldn't find anything. So he referred us to a pediatric specialist who deals with gut issues. And this doctor ran more tests. And I remember it was very strange meeting this doctor and going through this whole process of trying to figure out what was going on with my body because you're already feeling like insecure, like your body is betraying you somehow and you're fearful about what's going on. And then in walks this doctor in this pediatric world where I'm sure that he was able to connect with his patients really well, his younger patients. But here I am, 12, 13 years old, and I needed you know, somebody to be a little bit more comforting in that setting, but maybe not babying. So I remember walking in, there were like clown posters everywhere. There's like paint on the walls and he just walks in and talked to me almost like I was a five-year-old. Like, okay, let's lift up that shirt of yours and take a peek at that tummy. Do, do, do. And like lifted my shirt up in like three little sound effecty, weird. It was just a strange experience. So moving on from that, that doctor really didn't know what was going on. He basically suggested to adjust my diet, cut out dairy, cut out gluten. So we tried to control things with diet, but they just kept getting worse. And it got to the point where on a weekly basis, I was waking up in the night vomiting uncontrollably, laying on a heating pad every night for pain. And I would just wake up crying out in the night, like screaming for my parents, help mom, dad, help in the middle of like throwing up uncontrollably, horrible fever in a cold sweat, dehydrated. It was just a really, really rough time. Um, and finally, I remember one night after this going on for a while, my parents come rushing in. We start the whole routine of it's gonna be okay, giving me a cold rag, trying to get my vomiting to calm down, trying to get me to not cry because it was, you know, it was a scary thing. And I just felt so miserable. And I remember my mom looking at me and I must've looked like really pale this particular night or something, but she was just like, okay, I think we need to go into the hospital. And that, instantly freaked me out. Like, wait, why? The doctor said there's nothing wrong. This is just my life now. We don't need to go into the hospital. Finally, she convinces me to go. And as we're trying to walk down the stairs of our two-story house, I remember my vision just like went. I couldn't see. And I just started collapsing and almost passed out. Um, so they're carrying me to the car, get me in the back seat, And I'm just like rolling around in pain, grabbing my stomach, crying my eyes out and I really thought that my insides were going to explode. It was that intense and of course my mom and dad are panicking like flying through red lights, driving as fast as they can, finally get to the hospital. They get me in a wheelchair and wheeled to the back room. Nurses are just swarming around us and I remember them trying to get this NG tube which goes through your nose, down the back of your throat, into me so that they could I'm thinking stop me from vomiting or what it does is it gets some of the bile and some of the stuff out of your um, stomach. So they were trying to get that in and I just kept projectile vomiting all over myself, all over the bed. And they're like, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But you know, it was just a horrible experience for me. And I felt so bad. Like it was something I was doing. 
And they were like, well, you know, if we can't get this down, we might have to do an emergency surgery. We might have to fly her out somewhere else. And I remember this one doctor coming in and he was very sure of himself, which I'm so thankful for doctors who do not panic in these stressful situations because he walked right up to my young little self, looks me in the eyes and he's like, we're getting this thing in. It's going to suck, but we can do it. And he got it. And that was the first moment where I had to summon the courage to face my life. I think that some people, they're just courageous. They can um, be brave. They can put on a face. And then other people are timid and not built that way. But life makes them tough because there is no other option except to be strong. So that was the first time I remember self-talking myself into something, like having this conversation in my head, like, Sarah, you're going to be okay. You can do this. You can do this. And I'd never really had to do that before, but that was the first time of many of me doing that. And they finally got the tube in, admitted me to the hospital, and I was there for about a week. I remember a doctor finally coming in who became my GI specialist, and he came in late one night and told us the news, like, this girl has really been in some pain. And the answer is she has an autoimmune disease called Crohn's disease. Currently, there is no cure, but we're going to try to control it as best we can with medication and dietary changes. And I really didn't know what all that meant at that time because I was so tired, so exhausted from the day and overstimulation of everything that was going on. Um, just to get me into that room. And honestly, I didn't want to look up a lot of things online because that was kind of scary, figuring out what all the symptoms could be and what all the complications could be. So I really just relied on my parents to relay whatever information I needed at the time to get me by. So they kind of explained to me what it meant. And I was discharged from the hospital with steroids, with antibiotics, with anti-nausea medications, with um, all these other pills. So I went from taking pretty much no medicine to taking 10 plus pills during that time. And some of them had a horrible taste. Some of them were just ginormous and hard to swallow. So just making that one adjustment of adding in those pills was really tough for me to get used to and then add in the dietary changes and then add in all of the side effects from the steroids, which if you've never been on them before, a high dose for a long term like that when using it to treat an autoimmune disease, um, it causes weight gain, especially in your face. It causes moodiness. It causes extreme hunger. Like I would eat and be hungry five minutes after and my stomach was constantly having these hunger pains. And it almost became a source of anxiety, like, am I ever going to be full? That in itself was stressful. It caused insomnia, so it was really hard for me to sleep. But the hardest part, I think, was definitely the weight gain. Because here I am now entering high school, and my friends are calling me flaky because I'm having to cancel plans because I'm so exhausted and in so much pain, and they don't understand how one day I can go out and go to the football game or go to a movie and then the next day be so spent and drained that I can't get out of bed. And so they would be like, well, I saw, you know, on MySpace or on Facebook that that's what it was at the time, MySpace, live journal, 
that you were out doing this with so-and-so, so why can't you come out today with me? You're flaky. You, you cancel plans. You whatever. So all these assumptions then add in, I'm no longer throwing up uncontrollably, but it turned into having it out the other end. So at school, in high school, I'm having to go to the bathroom and it's something I can't really control. And there were times where I tried to control and accidents happen because you can't force your body to do anything um, when it comes to something that's out of your control. So I would go to the bathroom and have these girls, these high school mean girls like, oh my gosh, something stinks. Somebody's, you know, going to the bathroom, all these things, like without getting too graphic, like it was explosive. It was uncontrollable. And it became this shameful mocking thing. And I just want to say to anybody listening, like if somebody around you is dealing with a disease that is out of their control, we should never, ever make them feel guilty or shameful about it. You never know what somebody is going through. And bathroom issues specifically, like that's what the bathroom is for. It's not for you to put on your lipstick and stare at yourself in the mirror for 10 minutes. It's for people who need to use the bathroom. So I just hope that at some point that can become a safe place for people. Um, But dealing with that and then anybody that's dealing with, you know, seizures or diabetes or um, any kind of physical limitation, I just hope that it can become something that we understand and show compassion about because that was a really rough time for me. Then there was, of course, not being able to eat what everybody else ate, um, not being able to go where they wanted to go. So they'd be like, oh, we want to go get pizza. And I'd have to say, I can't eat pizza or, oh, we want to go get this. And it was just tough socially. I missed a ton of school from the time that I was diagnosed. um, Pretty much every year I would be in the hospital for a week or more. Um, Sometimes it was multiple um, separate hospitalizations because things just still were not getting under control. And I would miss so much school. I would just be so behind. I felt like I could never get ahead. I could never um, excel at something because I was constantly being held back. So finally, um, my junior year, the doctor was like, okay, these treatments aren't working. We're going to put you on Humira, which is a um, injectable medication that you inject either in your thigh or your stomach and it is immunosuppressing so if I was in the room with anybody who was sick pretty much I was going to get sick and not only was I going to get what they had but it was going to take me much longer to get over it so somebody might get over it without antibiotics they might take one round of antibiotics and it was taking me two or three rounds of antibiotics and sometimes even a hospitalization because of dehydration, because of weakness to get over these things. So anytime it was flu season, I was having to like have this anxiety of anywhere I went that I was going to get sick. I was just constantly, constantly getting sick. So that was miserable. And what actually happened with the Humira is it created almost like this lupus-like reaction is how one of the doctors explained it to where it just wiped out my immune system And it actually made the Crohn's manifest in other areas. So it was controlling the intestinal Crohn's a little bit, but it was causing it to flare in other areas. So finally, the doctor was like, all right, well, there's no other option but surgery. And I remember when he was saying that, I was just thinking in my head, 
how am I going to fit a surgery into my life? At this point, it was the summer before my senior year of high school. The last thing I wanted to do was have this massive surgery, but there was no option. And again, I was having to talk myself into being brave. So we go to a specialist at Shands in Gainesville and scheduled the surgery. We went up there as a family. And I remember that morning, just really having to like hold back tears, choke it down and tell myself, you're brave, you're strong, you can do this. So had the surgery, they did a small bowel resection for a small bowel obstruction that I had at that time. They removed a good portion. Um, Almost all of my terminal ileum is gone, which is where you absorb um, nutrients, B12, iron, all those things. So after that surgery, I had to really get on some supplements to make sure I was getting the nutrition I needed. But I remember waking up from that surgery, um, the morphine that they were giving me for whatever reason was not touching the pain at all. So I wake up in so much pain, like screaming, help, somebody help. So finally the nurses come and adjust the pain um, management medicine. So it took a while to get the pain under control. But once that was under control, it was just like sleeping for a long time. Like I remember being in the hospital and sleeping for most of the recovery and then going home. And it was just hard to get comfortable because everything hurt. And during that time, I just had to remind myself, like, this too will pass. This too will pass. I remember looking up at a a picture as soon as I got home of myself on the wall during one of the times where I was feeling good and saying to my mom, like, through tears pouring down my face, am I ever going to be that girl again? Am I ever going to be healthy again? Because I felt so horrible. I had scars all over my body now. I had three scars on my stomach from this surgery. And... I clicked into this space where after that surgery, I was like, if I ignore this disease, it doesn't exist. And that was a really unhealthy place for me. So towards the end of my recovery, the protective um, seal, which is like this like thin waxy seal that goes over the scar um, that was below my belly button, hadn't even flaked off yet. It's supposed to come off on its own. And I was still on pain medicines and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out. And so I kind of guilted my parents into letting me go out like I'm fine I can do it I just need to go out I need to be around people they finally let me go out for I think it was like an hour or something but as soon as I got out I was miserable I was so tired and I remember like people asking to see my scar and that really took me off guard because it hadn't even the seal wasn't even off yet and I had to show it to people and they wanted to touch it and I just got so uncomfortable in that moment so A lot of healing after the surgery took place. A lot of me trying to figure out what my new normalcy was going to be. And I expected, you know, after this surgery, I'm going to be better. Life's going to go back to normal. If I can just get past this recovery phase, everything will be fine. Because they said, you know, after the surgery, you should be fine for, you know, five to ten years or whatever. And that did not happen for me. I was good for a little while and then that extra intestinal crone started coming back and that's basically meaning that there was no new obstruction in my intestines. There was no new narrowing because Crohn's disease basically eats away at your intestines until it forms a blockage and nothing can pass through and it's so narrow and inflamed and swollen. Um, You can get like 
um, leaking fistulas, which are little holes and you can get abscesses and all these things. So nothing like that was going on, but I was experiencing the extra intestinal, which meant my vision was starting to blur out and I couldn't really see. I was getting eye strain. I was getting arthritis in my joints and constantly feeling inflamed. Um, and I was getting a rash that would break out on my back and all down my butt and all down my leg, um, called cellulitis, which is a skin infection. And the skin is the biggest organ in your body. So anytime I would get that rash, I'd have to go into the hospital and get antibiotics and try to combat it. And I think the worst part was getting mouth ulcers. So it kind of moved away from the lower GI to the upper GI where I was now getting ulcers all in my mouth and all down my esophagus, which were super painful and hard to get rid of. And I'd have to go in the hospital for that and get steroids and get um, antibiotics. And I remember like laying in the hospital bed, asking my mom to bring up my makeup and my hair straightener so she could straighten my hair and put my makeup on and like crunching my arm that had the IV in it so much, just trying to straighten my hair. And my mom's like, who are you getting ready for? What are you, why do you want to do this? You need to just sit there and rest. You're making your IV bleed. And we would get in these big old fights because I just wanted to feel normal and look normal. I was tired of getting the pity looks and I felt like if I just covered it up, it wouldn't exist. So that was a unhealthy place for me, a place of denial that really took a dramatic shift um, during one of those hospital stays for the mouth ulcers. So I had all the ulcers going on and my regular doctor was out of town. So an ER doctor prescribed a treatment for me. We left the hospital with that treatment and I started on it. And a few weeks in, all of a sudden, I started having these crazy hallucinations. And what actually happened is that treatment gave me an induced state of psychosis as a side effect from it. And it started off kind of small like I would maybe go into psychosis for two or three minutes. And then as the weeks went on, it got to the point where I was in this state of psychosis 90% of the day. And nobody knew what was going on. So they really didn't know what to do about it. I remember being at church and all of a sudden going into this state of psychosis. And like what happens is it manifests itself in whatever is most important to you. So at the time, the most important thing to me was my faith. So heaven, hell, um, the rapture, all these things. I started hallucinating that I was fighting demons or that I was in heaven and the angel armies were, you know, or I was like in the middle of the rapture and we were escaping the antichrist, like all these crazy, insane things. So I'm like running through the church, declaring the end of the world or trying to run down my street with a handful of left behind books because I'm bringing the answers to everyone going through the tribulation and it got to the point where like my parents had to lock me in the house had to like finally got to a breaking point when I was not coming out of it like it was just staying for most of the day that they called an ambulance to come get me took me into the hospital um they're doing scans on my brain to see if like there's a tumor or something's wrong and they can't find anything and after a few days being monitored and trying to like escape my room and attacking nurses and just holding my head and rolling around in pain because it was just so, it was so much of a mental distress. Um, finally they were like, okay, she is on the wrong floor. We need to submit her to the psych ward. And this is where my story gets pretty crazy. I spent 
three and a half weeks in the psych ward. And it was this place where nobody knew what was going on. Finally, a doctor figured out it was from the treatment that I was on, but then they had to make the choice. Are we going to take her off this treatment that's helping her body? Or are we going to try to help her mind? And that's a really tough decision to make. And I've had a lot of physical pain, but I will say anybody who is dealing with a mental disease and mental pain, that was way worse for me. And luckily mine was just a season, but anybody who's dealing with it long-term, I really feel for you. But there is hope. Finally, this doctor comes along that knows what's going on and she's able to help. She's able to start weaning me off of that treatment. And I don't really remember anything from the first three weeks. I remember waking up and looking around this room and finally realizing, okay, I'm in the hospital. I don't see an IV. What's going on? Walking out of the door and there's a construction paper sign taped to my door that says Sarah's room. So I'm walking and I find this nurse and I'm like, what, what is up with this sign? What's going on? And she, it looked like she had seen a ghost because apparently I had been in this state of catatonia for three days. So I was in this catatonic state where I'm just sitting still rigid, frozen in place, staring at the wall. And they didn't know how long I was going to be in that. They didn't know what was going to bring me out of that. They didn't know how I was going to be when I got out of it. So she's just like, do you really not remember anything? This is what's going on. You kept trying to attack patients. You didn't know where you were supposed to be. So we had to put a sign on your door to let you know this was your room. And I'm like, okay, well, I want to get out of here. I'm fine now. She's like, well, you're not fine. You've been Baker acted and you can't leave. You can't leave until a psychologist and a psychiatrist clears you. So at that time, it was free time. So everyone else in that ward was outside having their outside free time. And what I learned is that there's a few different wings of the psych ward or sections, if you will. There's one for like the elderly, the people that are um, mentally unwell trying to self-harm. There's a spot for people who are very, very high risk, who actually need 24-7 monitoring with a one-on-one nurse, which I was in for a while is what I found out. And I would actually like attack this nurse and try to leave. And of course, all the doors are sealed shut and you can't get out without a nurse unlocking them. But I would like be banging against the walls and they would have to come and sedate me with these um, sedation injection shots or whatever they are. So apparently I was there and then I got moved to the wing that I was currently in, which was for like moderate risk or semi-high risk patients. And so she's letting me know you know, they're out there. This is our common area. Everyone has a room. And then there's like a common area where you eat dinners and there's books and there's a TV. And she was like, they're going to be coming in soon and it's going to be dinner time. So you need to go sit and we'll give you your medicine. So I'm like sitting in this common area, looking at this sealed door to the psych ward, knowing that at any moment patients are going to walk through that are crazy. And that was my thinking at the time. Um, come to find out I was the craziest one on the floor, literally attacking and pulling patient's hair out. And just, of course I didn't know what I was doing, but it was just a very traumatic thing. But in spite of it all, I think it's so cool that 
somehow God was glorified. Because in the middle of the night, when I was having these hallucinations, um, during that first three-week period, apparently I would scream out every night, Jesus, 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 like on repeat. And of course, it was in a crazy, insane way, but still the name was being glorified. You know, the name was getting out there. And now he uses this story, I know, to help inspire other people. But after being released, finally getting to go home, um, they had to start me on antipsychotics because all of a sudden I'm starting to have these flashbacks of what did happen in those first three weeks of being there. And it was so traumatic that I couldn't handle it. So I had to start being on antipsychotics for about six months. Then after that, um, they put me on, you know, some anxiety medicine and I just had to go see a counselor and talk all this out because I was having horrible anxiety and panic attacks and depression. So my surgery was in 2009. The psychosis was in middle of 2010. And then it was an entire year long healing process in 2011, where I'm healing from the trauma, I'm going to a counselor, I am healing and trying to deal with this anxiety and depression and sense of hopelessness and now fear because the treatment that is supposed to treat my disease, I can't have. So now I'm afraid that I'm going to get sick. And what am I going to do? I'm going to have to choose between my mind and my body. And that's a horrible place to be. And I remember during that time, I really couldn't go to church and I really couldn't um, read the word like I used to. And I remember during that time, um, I was being encouraged to avoid triggers like going to church or anything that would trigger some of those flashbacks when I was first initially healing because they wanted me to have time to process and, and move past all that trauma. So that meant that I was feeling so alone. Like I, I didn't have my pastor. I didn't have my church family. Um, I couldn't really read the word like I wanted to. Um, and it was just this scary thing for me. So all I had was this one verse. And it was just, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And I just kept meditating on that. All I have to do is believe. All I have to do is believe. All I have to do is believe. Fear not, only believe and you will be made well. And this was a season of my life where medicine was falling short. There was no treatment that was going to be able to help me um, in my physical symptoms. And also I was having all these mental anxiety and panic and depression. And God was really speaking to me that you have a sound mind. I can heal your mind. I am the great physician. I can heal your body. And there were so many times where he did do that. So finally, um, that anxiety broke off and that depression um, broke off and the, the traumatic flashbacks broke off and I was able to go back to church. I was able to basically get back into a normal life still with this fear of the unknown of what if I get sick again. And that was around the time where I met my now husband, Charlie. They started me back on the Humira um, injections, hoping that that would kind of control the extra intestinal Crohn's a little bit more. And I learned that um, in past relationships, if I tried to hide what I had and not tell them about Crohn's disease, it became an issue. So I told Charlie right up front when we were still just friends, like, hey, I can't come over tonight because it's injection night. And he's like, what is that? And I'm like, well, it's Humira. I have Crohn's disease. This is what it is. And I just laid it out. Um, and he was so 
incredibly understanding about it. And it's a good thing that I did let him know because we had probably one full year where everything was great. You know, I had gained this new strength from going through that trauma and surviving it and going through this battle with anxiety and surviving it. And I was feeling so good. But then all of a sudden, those symptoms started coming back. So I went to a specialist at Shands. My doctor referred me over there and um, she became my new GI doctor. And she actually let me know there is this new medication. It was a chemotherapy drug that was intended to treat cancer. It didn't work, but now we're finding that it's working for Crohn's disease. And that was kind of when it was first being launched. Now I think it's a little bit more well-known. It is called Intivio, and it's an infusion that I started getting every four weeks at the infusion center, and now I get it every six weeks. So I started on that, and it really started to help some of those extra intestinal symptoms. Um, thankfully, I still didn't have the Crohn's coming back in the intestines. And after about a year of being on that, I did end up having this issue with my lymph node because one of the things it can cause is lymphoma. So all of a sudden, this treatment is finally working. I'm feeling better. I'm in this relationship that's thriving. And then I've got this cancer scare where my lymph node is swelling up like crazy. Um, and for several weeks, you know, they're saying it might be cancer. We're going to test it. We'll call you back. And that's always a long process. Finally, they ended up doing surgery and removing it. And thankfully, it was nothing. It was just a reactive lymph node reacting to Crohn's disease itself and maybe inflammation caused by the disease. So after stopping the Humira, getting on this intivio, getting past the cancer spell or scare, the cancer scare, things were starting to look up. Then I started having upper GI issues. Bad. It wasn't the mouth ulcers, but it was like esophageal spasms, horrible pain in my chest, like one of the worst pains ever. Um, and I've, I've been through some pains. I mean, the Crohn's pain is rough. Different tests that I've done have been rough. I think there's a scale of the different tests. Some of them are easy, you know, MRIs, barium swallows, um, colonoscopy, endoscopy, camera swallow. If there's a test out there, I have done it. Um, but then that esophageal reflex test was, um, esophageal manometry test was pretty rough. So this was a rough pain. It was um, something that kept putting me in the hospital and they weren't really sure what was going on. Finally, they realized, okay, it's gallstones. So now I've got these gallstones that I'm trying to control with diet. And I did control it for maybe four months, but it was still this horrible thing where I couldn't eat like more than seven, eight grams of fat a day. Anywhere we went, there was nothing I could eat because they cook everything in butter or oil and that would be all my fat for the day. Like one piece of bread is, I think like four or five grams of fat. So it was just this crazy scary time where I was constantly fearing being out in public and having this pain. Finally, Christmas 2018, right after Charlie and I get married in September, I end up having emergency gallbladder surgery because me controlling it by diet was not working. So now I've had my third Crohn's related surgery. They removed my gallbladder and I remember coming home like a week before um, Christmas in horrible pain. 
just trying to make it through the holiday and not be in pain. So we didn't hardly do anything for our first Merry Christmas. Everybody came to us. It was a pretty tough time. And after that is kind of when I sunk into this little bit of a depression. And Charlie and I had just bought a fifth wheel in November to renovate into our full-time newlywed tiny house that we're going to be doing um, for three years. So we bought this. We thought it would be a three-month renovation. It turned into an eight-month renovation. And during that time, um, we were so busy, and I was dealing with some depression from just feeling like I was never going to get a grip on my health. And we were also just eating junk because there was no time to meal prep, no time to work out. All of our time was spent renovating this fifth wheel. So I gained back the weight that I had lost because when I was doing the no fat, I got down to like 105. My typical weight is 120. I've never been lower. I've never been higher. Um, that's my weight that I've just been all of my life pretty much, except when I've been extremely sick. So I got down to 105. I gained the weight back that I lost and then I gained 25 more pounds. So I was 141. So I was just not feeling good in my body, not feeling good in my mind. So finally we moved into our fifth wheel after a very, very long wait. That was in September. And I think I thought in my mind, like once we got here, everything was gonna fall into place. All of a sudden I was gonna be the best wife. I was gonna be, you know, all about health and jump back into the fitness routine that I had done before we got married. Because right before we got married, when I was struggling with that gallbladder issue, I started this fitness journey and did this high-intensity interval training to where I was able to wear my dream dress. I had bought this poofy like cupcake dress, and I was able to return that and wear my dream dress, which was more slim fit, sheer front. And I was feeling good about myself at that point. It wasn't until after the surgery for the gallbladder that this little bit of depression started. So now I'm thinking I'm just going to jump back in to that workout routine and get back to feeling good about myself. And it didn't happen. I tried to do the workout routine, but after a year of not working out, um, my body just was not having it. I couldn't keep up and I started feeling hopeless. Like I, I'm never, I'm never going to get in shape. So I really hit a low moment when I just started thinking these toxic thoughts like you're never going to be able to pursue the dreams you want to pursue you're never going to be able to be a mom how could you ever have the energy to do that you're never going to be able to um, have a home business because at this point I had tried 14 jobs that I had to quit because of Crohn's so my husband and I were like you are not going to work a traditional job. You've got to find something you can do from home because it's non-negotiable that your health has to be your full-time job. You can't keep up with a schedule that doesn't cater to your body. So I'm just like feeling like I will never be able to do that. I will never be able to feel good about my body, all of these things. So I remember eating like a whole bag of chips, just having a pity party for myself. And after eating that, I remember hearing like, the spirit speak to me. The enemy of your soul comes to steal, comes to kill, and comes to destroy. And you are literally letting him kill. He can literally kill 
your body and not to blame everything on the enemy, but sometimes it's just our poor choices. But I mean, some of these things that we do to ourselves can literally kill us. And when dealing with an autoimmune disease, you can't just eat a pint of ice cream or a bag of chips and expect to be okay. Yeah, I believe in God being our healer, but we have an obligation as well to do our part. So that was really the drawing, the line in the sand moment for me where I was like, okay, whatever it takes, I have got to pursue wellness and health. So I started this second fitness journey where I reached out to an online coach and I was like, listen, this is where I'm at. I can't do anything other than where I'm at. And she's like, that's okay. Everybody starts somewhere. So I found this dance program, which is sort of like Zumba, a more like upbeat hip hop version of Zumba that I could actually do. It is challenging, but it's not so challenging that my body is on the brink of injury when I'm doing it. So it's something that I can actually do. It's making me gain confidence. I've been doing it for almost a month now and I'm feeling so much better mentally and I'm learning that it really is a mental game. And my Crohn's is still in remission in the intestines. I'm seeing that it's um, getting more and more in remission in the extra intestinal Crohn's as I'm taking care of my body and feeding it whole foods and moving it for 30 minutes a day. And maybe you're at this point where you don't have a physical disease or a physical um, health issue right now, but you're not taking care of your body. You're not moving it for 30 minutes. You're not taking care of your mind and you're in that depressive, toxic thinking, hopeless feeling cycle, or you're dealing with anxiety or you just don't value working out because this is really the second time that I've ever worked out. It never was a part of my life. Um, One, because I was so sick I couldn't, but two, because I just didn't think I needed to. And maybe you don't have this... um, pressing health issue. But one of the things that I'm really learning is even when I'm in remission, even when I'm in the good times, it's really hard to remember that if I'm feeling good, if I don't continue to feed my body and move my body, that can be taken away. Maybe we don't see it in symptoms from a disease manifesting, but 10 years, five years down the road, you're going to see the choices that you make on a daily basis show up in your energy level and your confidence level. Um, It's so crazy to think that, you know, 75 to 90% of diseases now are caused by things that we can control. And people are dying 20 to 30 years younger than we used to because of preventable diseases heart disease, you know, all of these things that we can control by our lifestyle choices. So if I could leave anything from this podcast, here's what I want to say to the person struggling with IBD and autoimmune disease. You don't owe anybody anything. Okay. You don't owe them an explanation of why you're fine one day and why you're not the next day because they're not going to get it. You don't owe them an explanation of trying to explain to them how sick you are. You don't have to constantly be put in that posture of a victim. If they don't get it and they don't see what you struggle with on a daily basis, 
you don't owe them anything. Your only priority is you. Health is your full-time job. And you have to be a little bit selfish in that. Otherwise, you're going to spend and spend and spend and give all that you have and have nothing left. To the person struggling with anxiety, I would say, you are not alone. But you can't overcome alone. You need a support system. You might need to go to counseling. You might need to be on medication for a little while. You might need to get around strong women who build you up and make you feel better. You cannot face this alone. It's a big battle. To the person struggling with depression, I would say, own your journey. Do not despise the hard things. I've gone through a lot of hard things and sometimes it's easy to feel depressed like, man, I'm never going to get better. I'm never going to be able to do this or that like her or whatever it might be. And even if you are facing a hopeless situation, you know, right now I have a desire to be a mom, but I've heard from a handful of doctors that I can't carry a baby in my body. Now I'm hearing something else from other doctors that maybe I will be able to, but that's only going to happen if I'm in the right mindset for it, if I'm in the right physical state for it, this gummy bear body right now that I'm in is not going to be able to do it. I've got to be in the best physical shape that I've ever been in. So if you're if you're struggling with depression, own your journey. You know, the things that you've gone through, they are going to be hard and then they're going to get easier and then they're going to get harder and then they're going to get easier. But everything that you're going to go through is going to help you to connect with other people and there is purpose that can come out of the pain because I've walked through anxiety I can help somebody else who's walked through anxiety don't feel like because you're at one place now you're never going to get to another place just own where you are and start where you are don't be embarrassed about your starting point just start somewhere and once you start that depression will start getting better and again you can't do it alone to the person with insecurity, I would say, until you believe that you are worthy of love, no one else's love is going to be worth it. Meaning that you're going to pursue love from friends or coworkers or mentor or um, a significant other and you're going to constantly be chasing that love. But even when you catch it, it's not going to be worth it. It's not going to be what you thought it would be because you haven't deemed yourself worthy of your own love. So you have to love yourself before anybody else's love or words of affection or telling you that you're valuable are going to really hold any weight. To the person struggling with health, you were not made to be a gummy bear. You are a freaking warhead. You're meant to be explosive, mind-blowing, intense. When you walk in a room, everywhere that you go, Everywhere that your feet hit, that place is yours. The Bible tells us that. When we go into a room, we should set the temperature and set the tone. We shouldn't say what the temperature is. We're not a thermometer. We're a thermostat. When we step into a room, we should be strong. We should be confident. We should be able to live out the God-given dreams that he's placed in our heart. And that comes from us realizing there's certain places that God wants to take us that we can't go where we are right now. 
this body that I'm in right now isn't going to be able to go and hold up in the calling that God has for me in the future. And that doesn't mean that hard days aren't going to come or there's not ever going to be another struggle with Crohn's disease, but it means that I'm going to be doing my part and I'm going to be confident, the most confident I can be because I'm doing personal development and I'm feeding my mind and soul. I'm going to be confident because I'm feeding my body. And even when it doesn't look exactly how I want it to look, I know that every day I'm doing my part to get closer to where I want it to be. And when I feel good and have the energy, then I can start going those places. Because how many times have you been out and people are like, oh, I'm tired. Or you try to go step out in something and your body just can't keep up. You burn out. So you've got to be in this peak performance state if you want to follow those big dreams or you're going to burn out, especially if you have an underlining disease. The outside reflects what you're doing in your inner world. So if you want to be a strong leader, it's going to be really hard to tackle a non-physical goal that you can't see, like a dream in the future or a mental mindset, if you can't even tackle a physical goal that you can see. And that's not being mean. It's not about weight. It's about how you feel. It's not a number game. It's determining, am I living up to the best version of myself? Am I giving my body the best chance that I can? I know it's hard to get motivated, especially to work out, but your life depends on it. Invest in yourself. It's the greatest thing you will ever do for yourself, whether that's your energy, your time, your money, um, investing mentally by pushing past fears, getting that counselor, getting that support group, getting that nutritional supplement, getting that um, new dress, whatever it is, getting that skincare regimen, invest in yourself. At least then you know where your money's going because you're going to spend money regardless. And sometimes you look back on the year and you're like, man, where did my money go? At least then you can look and say, oh, I know where my money went. I put it right here and I'm seeing growth from it and fruit from it. I hope that my story encouraged you. I am just starting out in this fitness journey. I'm starting bar very soon, which I'm excited about. I'm seeing improvement in my stamina and I can't wait to start seeing not only improvement in my stamina and in um, losing weight, but in starting to sculpt and starting to um, gain muscle and feel strong. If you're struggling, if you need some resources. This is why I'm so passionate about sharing my health journey, about sharing my spiritual and mental journey, um, because I want other people to believe that even if you're going through these hard, hard things, there's hope on the other side. Eventually, you're going to get through it. And I'm here to help you and resource you with the things that I've learned along the way, however I can. So reach out. Don't be too shy to ask a question if you're dealing with something that I could maybe provide an answer to. We are never victims. We are always victors. Keep that in mind this week as you go through your own journey. And I hope that we can encourage each other along.